This is a wee bit of everything. The podcast that explores all things sport and teaching. Hello there and welcome to the A Wee Bit of Everything podcast with your hosts Lewis and Clark. Thanks for coming back to tune in to this week's episode. We really are amazed by all the support we have received from everyone so far. Our partner of the podcast is Premiership Experience who have played a big role in helping us develop. Premiership Experience offer fantastic sports tours within the UK and abroad so be sure to check them out on Twitter at Prem Experience. This is a professional learning platform where we get ideas and insights from like-minded professionals. Our vision is to inspire, to teach and to entertain. So let's get started with this week's episode of A Wee Bit of Everything. This week on the podcast we're joined by Senior Educational Psychologist Donna Carrigan from South Lanarkshire Council. Donna's on tonight to talk to us about attachment theory and how this can impact on our practice when working with young people in schools. Donna's been delivering a couple of insights in my school in recent uh, months and I'm looking forward to finding out a wee bit more about the attachment theory and um, digging a wee bit deeper into her, her knowledge and experience. So we'll get her on the show. Hey, how you doing, Donna? Welcome to a wee bit of everything. It's been it's been great speaking to you over email over the past few while, but it's um, absolutely brilliant to get you on to talk about attachment theory. How's your day been? It's been good, yes. Um, I've been in one of my schools working with some young people um, and really enjoying that. So, yeah, thank you for inviting me on to talk to you tonight. No, I'm really, really interested to, to know more about um, attachment theory and how it can impact on our young people. Um, and I know Lewis is the same from speaking to him earlier on. So, we'll get, um, we'll get, the, we'll get, we'll move on to that sort of stuff after we kind of cover your, your career. So, would you like to give us, us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date? Yeah, sure. Um, well, after my undergraduate degree, I worked in a residential school for young people who had a range of social, emotional and behavioural needs. And I suppose my interest in psychology and education started here because I wanted to try to understand and support the young people who are finding school really challenging and showing a range of distressed behaviour and who are no longer educated within their local communities. So um, after that, I then worked for a brief spell for children whose parents had mental health difficulties. And that really gave me an insight into how circumstances at home can really impact on someone's ability to learn and cope with school. Um, mm. So I suppose these experiences motivated me to do my master's degree in educational psychology. Um, as I realised I wanted to become involved with supporting children and young people at an earlier stage and also within their local communities. Um, so after qualifying as an educational psychologist, I began working in South Lancashire Council and 17 years later, I'm still there. Um, so um, as an educational psychologist, um, I think we meet a range of people through all walks of life. We work with children and young people of all ages, families and lots of different circumstances and staff across education and other sectors. And the jobs taught me so much over the years about the importance of relationships, really. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose what's really exciting for me just now is that within South Lanarkshire, we have a director of education and a kind of senior leadership team that really believe in relationships as a key to supporting children and young people. Um, and they see attachment forms practice as fundamental to our way forward. So part of my remit now really is to chair the council's attachment strategy group. 
and support the implementation of our strategy across this authority, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I suppose that's that's why I'm here tonight to talk yeah. a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. So I gather there's a sort of range of factors that impact on kind of young person's ability to learn. Um, would you say that relationships are a kind of fundamental thing then, building a positive relationship with, with a young person? Absolutely, absolutely. I think children don't learn from people they don't get on with and they don't like. And children can sense um, if, if someone, you know, isn't, isn't bonding or isn't, you know, there for them or there to support them. So I think relationships are, are, are fundamental. Um, and, and attachment theory te teaches us all about relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well, you know I've been on this sort of training, as you spoke about there, for the attachment um, informed practice. Um, would you be able to then elaborate further on the sort of principles behind this theory? Um, and then maybe a wee bit about how this would impact a practice in schools. And is, is, is all your work in schools or do you work in certain other establishments? Um, schools and, and nurseries, um, but, we, but we work, you know, really closely with social work colleagues, with health colleagues, right. um, and a range of kind of um, services within education which are out with our schools. Right. Um, so like, like community centres and things like that for young people. So we work, we work in a range of settings really to, to support children and young people in whatever way we can. Um, but, but to kind of answer your question in terms of the key messages from attachment theory, um, uh, attachment theory is, is basically all about, as you know, relationships and first of all the relationships we have with our primary carers um, in our early years of life um, and these relationships can have a significant impact on how we develop socially, emotionally and psychologically. Um, mm -hmm. Attachment theory originated from the work of John Bowlby in the 1940s and his colleague Mary Ainsworth in the 1960s. And it's now recognised as one of the most influential theories for understanding how we develop as people um, mm. and how our personalities to develop as a result of, kind of what happens in childhood. So to kind of give your listeners a wee bit more understanding, if we think about when a baby is very young um, and they need something like food or comfort or play, they feel stressed um, and they signal that discomfort to their parent or carer through, for example, crying. So it's a parent or carer's job then to tune in um, to their baby's unique cries and signals for their needs and to soothe the baby um, mm -hmm. and to meet those needs. Um, and if they do that, the baby's stress levels are reduced um, and they learn that, that someone will come in and make things better. Um, so this early attachment is, is a process that we call kind of serve and return, where the child serves and the adult returns this serve in the first few years of life. And it's a process that has a, is crucial for shaping how we grow and develop through childhood and into adulthood. Um, for some children, this process is successful um, and the adult responds and meets the child's needs, reducing their stress levels. Um, and the child then develops positive views about themselves and about others around them. But for some children, the serve and return is not successful for a variety of reasons and the child's needs aren't met um, and the stress levels are not reduced. And this can lead to the child having a negative view about themselves and about others. So it's important to say that as well that there shouldn't be any blame attributed to parents or carers because of a disrupted attachment. 
for an unsuccessful attachment. It can happen um, due to many factors like separation and illness. So there's lots of reasons why this serve and return doesn't go well in the early years. Would you say there's a sort of specific age in the development that's really kind of precarious and you need to make sure that that, that, that return is there? Or is, or is I think that the very, very early stages of, of life um, in the first few few years of life really is, is when the brain is, is, is most adaptable. Um, so those early kind of first two or three years of life are the, the most crucial, I would say. Right. Um, but in terms of what it means for us in education, um, is that I think we really need to know and understand attachment theory. Um, and we need to see the person in front of us as, as a whole person. So what I mean by that is we need to consider them in the context of their relationships and possibly what's happened to them and how that's affected them um, in order to understand their needs and support them. Um, in a sense, we need to kind of encourage the children who have not had successful attachments into a world of secure attachments and show them what it's like to have someone who cares about them and who believes in them, really. Mm -hmm. So the teachers can be that person to... Teachers can absolutely be that person, yeah. So do you think it's like almost kind of hard, so see if you're, like you said, that kind of serve and return idea, is it, do you think that's just kind of hardwired into their, their subconscious mind then? Is that why maybe some pupils behave in certain ways and is that kind of just like kind of progressed through their life because they've not really had that attachment, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, if you're, you're a baby and you, you have a stress and your hormone levels are, are high, your stress levels are high, and your adult comes and sues you, then your stress levels are reduced. Hmm. Um, so that you learn that the adults are trustworthy and, and they are, and someone's gonna help you manage those emotions. So yeah. if you haven't had that and you haven't had an adult helping you manage or regulate your emotions, then you don't learn how to regulate your emotions yourself, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so you're not able to maybe regulate your emotions when you become older and go into school. Um, so if you can't regulate your emotions, you're more likely to go into fight, flight or freeze mode more quickly um, because you, you haven't been able to um, develop that skill with that you know, adult that has shown you how to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. That's a really good way to help understand it, for sure. So, so there, how do you think schools and teachers can then make sure that they create an environment that um, kind of deals with any attachment issues? So how can we recognise them quickly and help this to solve them? Is that? Well, I think um, the, one of the fundamental things is to think about um, behaviour as being communication. Um, so basically, what, all, all behaviour we see is communication and distressed behavior is communication. So it's about us kind of recognizing someone in distress um, and recognizing um, that behavior is someone who's needing something or giving us a, as a message. Um, and that's one of the fundamental messages of the attachment strategy and the work we're doing in South Lanarkshire. Um, and it's key to any professional working to support children and young people is um, what we see in someone's behaviour is just the tip of the iceberg. So it's what's under the surface that really matters. So mm. we need to always, always be looking 
um, for messages behind someone's behaviour and trying to figure out what their thoughts and feelings might be and, the, and what support they might need from us. Um, so it's important to say that um, as well that, you know, it can be difficult um, to kind of understand someone's emotion behind their behaviour because, you know, you might feel a certain way, but you might not show it in your behaviour. So you might act aggressively, but your actual emotion might be that you're nervous or anxious, but you might show it aggressively in your behaviour. So it's, it's a tough job to find out, you know, what's under the surface, but that's where the importance of relationships come in, because if you've got a good relationship with someone, then you're more likely to be able to read that and understand how they would normally behave when they're feeling a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, part of the, the kind of language we use in the, the training and the attachment training is um, using what we call noticing and wondering language. So um, saying things to a child like, you know, I'm, I'm noticing you're doing this or I'm noticing you're behaving this way. Um, and I'm wondering if that means that you might be feeling this particular way. Mm -hmm. So it's about exploring why children are doing what they're doing and helping them try to figure out, you know, what the feeling might be. So back to that serve and return thing that kids who have not had that in the early years, we're, we're now that kind of substitute person and we're teaching them to regulate um, and that's how we do that um, through this process that we call kind of co-regulation. So we're co-regulating with them to help them understand their emotions and manage their emotions, if, if that helps. Yeah, I think it's something that we need to get to get better at as well in terms of having being able to have those conversations, being able to ask the right questions and be able to, to dig deeper into the problem without... You know, I mean, like sometimes I feel like if I'm ever trying to have like some sort of restorative conversation with a pupil, um, like sometimes it doesn't go very far. I'm just like, I feel like I've just made a complete muck up of that. But um, it's, I suppose it's a skill being able to ask those questions well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, it's it's a skill, but it's it can be learned by anyone. It's yeah. not a difficult skill to learn. Uh -huh. um, it's just it's just about remembering try trying not to be judgmental. Um, and I suppose it's about flipping that thing about not seeing behaviour as challenging, but seeing behaviour as distressed. Mm -hmm. Because if we see behaviour as challenging, we see it as challenging for us. We're, we're um, having a challenge. We're, we're being challenged to support this child. But if we see it as a child in distress, then it's, it's flipping it around um, a little bit and, and changing our views of, of how we see children and young people. And, and schools who are, are not managing. So you see, even down to just like your kind of, just like your kind of minimal white noise disruptive behaviour that's like kind of constantly niggling in a, in, a, in a class. Is that is it still like? Is there still obviously a kind of un, unmet need there? Is I guess what I'm trying to get to. Like, is there still a reason for the way they are behaving like that, or is it just because they're in in with their friends and they're not necessarily think they're being disrespectful? And but it's actually having like maybe a kind of a bigger impact on the class's learning, if that makes sense. There's always a message. Yeah. Um, there's always a message from, from, from any behaviour. Um, and whether that is that they, they want to, you know, look cool in front of their friends or, you know, they, they want to, you know, act in a certain way to get attention from you as a teacher or attention from other people in the class. 
that that is a reason for yeah. why they're doing what they're doing so we, we need to uncover that reason and think about right why do they want your attention so much mm. why do they want the attention of the class so much why do they want to make other people in the class laugh or whatever so that there is definitely always a communication or a message there um, and finding that out often is is the vital part of, of any kind of intervention or support mm. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. It's just try try to put the, the, the puzzle together. I suppose that kind of comes by just by pra- by practicing like the kind of the things that you spoke about. But no, that kind of I was going to ask you there about that that the phrase that I can I've heard quite a lot since starting my teaching career was that um, all behaviour displayed by pupils as as a communication of maybe perhaps an unmet need or like you say they're wanting attention or whatever it may be. So now you've kind of answered that question um, nicely. Um, so moving on to, to my next one then, Donna, what are some common myths or barriers when teaching with attachment and form principles in your experience of kind of working with colleagues? That's an interesting question, actually, um, and a, a good question to ask. Um, that was I my th- one. I made that one up. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> I just gave it to us. <laughs> I think um, there could be possibly a misunderstanding that by applying attachment form practice, which is a relational approach, um, there there won't be any boundaries for children, um, and we may be letting children maybe get away with naughty behaviour. Um, but that's not the case at all with attachment form practice. Um, because it teaches the notion that children and young people need a balance of nurture and structure and that through relationships we can better understand the child and their their felt emotion behind the behaviour and we can teach the child, like I've said, how to regulate their emotions through modelling this for them. We we are trying to model it for them to show them how to do this in the future. Um, I think many children, as I've said, who have experienced trauma and disrupted attachment I've not had that experience of the adult supporting them to learn to one, identify their emotion, talk about their emotion and regulate their emotion. So as I've said, they often go into fight, flight or freeze mode very quickly. Um, And what we say, they kind of go out with their window of tolerance very, very quickly. So that's why when we see children who are distressed and, and their emotional dysregulation, then this can be your opportunity to teach them the skills um, that they need for, for future self-regulation. So it is a real opportunity um, to, to support a, a child to, to learn to do this. I think sometimes traditional behavioural sanctions um, can further kind of reinforce feelings of negativity for children and young people who already feel um, quite negative about the world. Um, and already have kind of low self-worth. So um, behavioural sanctions often kind of, um, you know, facilitate that even more um, for children and young people. So, I mean, if we consider um, that most exclusions that happen within schools happen because of a problem with relationships, either a breakdown in relationships um, between young people, between peers, or a breakdown in relationships with, with uh, young people and staff members um, by taking a relational approach we can look to repair these relationships and you talked about being restorative and I think that's really really um, the way forward is to try to repair relationships by teaching uh, the skills necessary for resolving conflicts because they're so vital in moving forward and leaving school and um, to be able to, to resolve the conflicts that you face. 
Yeah, I think the the one that's kind of cropped up with me the most when if ever we've had um, the educational psychologist in at our school and stuff was this kind of idea that so you just kind of let them do anything if there's no sanctions um, then what is there like how do you, how do you control um, distress behaviour but I think that's that must be one of the the main kind of challenges of your job when you're trying to put these principles across to to maybe teachers that are maybe towards the the later stages of their career. Um, but I think that's um, I certainly one of the the, the myths that I've kind of heard from about. But no, that's that's um, certainly interesting. Do you think there is a place for like sanctions? I think children need parameters. Children need boundaries. Um, they need to know that within these boundaries, they they are they feel safe. Um, so so lots of children. I mean, way back when I worked in the, the residential school. Um, these young people really craved, in a sense, boundaries, yeah. um, and they needed someone to say, Do you know, I care about you enough to say no, mm-hmm. you can't do whatever you want. Um, so I think, of course, children need parameters and, and boundaries in life, but it's the way um, you do that, it's, it's the way that you give those boundaries, um, and it's the time that you give them. I think sometimes if we try to put boundaries and consequences on a child when they're highly distressed, it's not going to work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and offer solutions, it's not going to work when they're highly distressed um, because they're at the peak kind of anxiety level. Um, what we need to do at that point is, is give is offer safety um, and you know calmness. Um, and then get them to a point where they're ready to listen and accept a consequence or a boundary um, and look for a possible solution in the future. So it's how we do it and it's when we do it that's important. So would you say, <clears throat> sorry, uh, would you say then, just before we move on and get your opinion of what you think a high quality teacher is, um, is there any sort of core principles then of at- attachment and form practice that like, kind of what it would look like, like creating that safe environment, as you said? listening to the pupils, is there any other kind of key messages just before we finish up on this aspect of it? Um, the key messages is, is to, um, you know, identify the triggers, first of all, um, for a child that may be, um, you know, impacting on their distress level and try to see what, when they're becoming more and more distressed so that you can intervene at an earlier stage. Mm -hmm. But like I've said, if they become very, very distressed in your classroom or in the school, the first thing, the only thing they need at that point or the only thing that will work for them at that point is to keep them safe um, and help them feel safe and try to help them feel calm. Only then, I think, will that enable you to kind of try to empathise with them and then look for solutions. For example, if this were to happen again, um, and this person were to annoy you again, how could you manage this differently in the future? So it's, a, it's a, I suppose, about us thinking about a young person, their triggers, identify when we see them getting a little bit more distressed, intervene appropriately at that point, and then think about this kind of cycle um, of, of their kind of stress levels. Right, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, no, that's great. That's th- thanks for sharing that. Um, it makes sense, totally. So, so then, as an education psychologist, kind of when would, would your job like become, like, what stage would you come in? Would that be after the, the kind of intervention from the teacher? Would you then come in to work with young people? 
well, often our job is working alongside the, the class teacher or other members of staff within the school. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of joint approach, if you like, mm -hmm. um, where we are consulting with the staff, um, sometimes coaching with yeah. them, um, sometimes coaching the young person, um, and not necessarily us working on a one-to-one -one with the young person all the time, although that is what young people really, really need. Um, mm. sometimes to develop their own coping strategies um, in the future. Um, but a lot of our work is working with staff um, on these kind of um, ideas and interventions on, on you know, supporting each other to think about solutions for children. I think the best solutions come or the best ideas come when people that really care about the child or young person get together in a room and start thinking about what really matters for this child um, and start actually thinking about their positive parts as well. Um, mm -hmm. So often we talk about um, the problems and we talk about the difficulties and, and that's quite right when we're trying to support a young person with their difficulties. But I think we, we need to also be thinking about all the time, what's this person's positive parts? Because everyone has positive parts and identify what their skills are, what they're good at, what they enjoy and really build on this. Yeah, thanks often, for often that's about what we call solution focused working. Um, we, we'll look for the solutions and we, we, we use positive type psychology to kind of look for the positives where we can mm -hmm. find them. It sounds like a lot of it is down to the mindset of the teacher then and kind of try to shift your perception of the people and kind of what is stuck, like, have, have belief in them as well and kind of accentuate the positives as you said. So mm -hmm. thanks for sharing that. Can, um, can I, I was just going to ask one question. It's nothing to uh, just kind of, I was just thinking of it while we're on, on that topic. See in terms of working with a school that's maybe adopted like over the past however decades or whatever they've had that kind of traditional approach to like sanctions and stuff and then they're trying to adopt a more um attachment informed practice does that how, how long is that kind of culture kind of shift i feel like take does it is that like a case of years or Oh, you're asking me a difficult one here. I, I, uh, I, I don't know, but all I know is it, it can, it's not easy yeah. um, and it's not quick mm -hmm. um, because a lot of behavioural approaches are so ingrained in how we do things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, That's a challenge, so, isn't it? So much a part of, of um, the way schools have been. Mm. that to change very quickly is, is not something that's probably going to happen. I think that, that the more information that is put out there about the importance of relationships, the more people are understanding and the more people see it works um, and it really helps change a situation for the teacher and for the young person, I think the more um, we'll, we'll have a movement and we'll, we'll have a whole change in mindset, really. Mm. I think a key message as well is just to try and be patient with it. It's, like you said, it's not going to, it's not no something, it's not a magic wand that's going to change behaviour overnight or it's not like a, a quick fix solution yet. It's, a, it's something that's going to take time and mm. effort. Like you need to put yeah. the work into to obviously mm -hmm. get the, the rewards yeah. out of it. But yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I don't think you'll ever reach it. You probably just need to be relentless with the principles and keep keep at it. You know, I don't think you can stop once you're there. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. I think once you fully understand attachment theory um, and you start to apply it, then 
you you don't go back to the way that that you maybe used to operate because you you understand more about the power of relationships. Yeah, right. So we like to ask this question to kind of all of our guests, and um, be interesting to get your take on it and what you think a high quality teacher is, Donna. No pressure. No pressure, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, can I your opinion of? Like your work in schools, what, what would you say um, makes a high quality teacher of the ones that you've seen make, make, make them the best? Well, do you know what? I'm going to use the words um, of a child I recently worked with mm-hmm. um, because I think children and young people tell us um, more about the, the answer to this question than we can. Absolutely. Um, so the child I recently worked with um, who was talking about the difference between the classes he does well in and those he doesn't. Um, and he described the teacher um, in his successful classes as someone who didn't shout, gave him chances and un- tried to understand him. Uh, so for me, this says a lot about the way we need to be with children and young people. So we need to be respectful and provide boundaries in a way that doesn't humiliate or shame. Uh, we need to be aware of our, this is, a, this is a big part of it, we need to be aware of our own responses and how we as adults respond to a situation and consider how we're feeling at the time or on that particular day. Is there something that could have made us react a bit quicker to a situation than we normally would have? Um, and when we deliver the attachment training, we talk about identifying your sharp music. Um, so we talk about adults identifying their own sharp music and thinking about their triggers in a situation. And I think that this is quite powerful to help people understand their own stress responses because we all have different stress responses and different triggers um, and that has an impact on, on any kind of given situation. Um, I think the third part of what the child says is, is key and that he felt that the teacher was trying to understand him from where he was coming from and his, his life story if you like. Mm. Um, and this is about trying to know and understand someone, like I've said, you know, as a whole person and where they might be coming from um, to build those strong relationships of trust and support. Because, like I said at the beginning, we are trying to encourage kids who haven't had secure attachment into the world of secure attachment that they are not familiar with. Um, so we, we have to teach them what it's like to have an adult to trust, to be that trusting adult um, and to, 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 you know, reach out and, and ask for help. Yeah, that's good. I like that about the kind of not shouting, giving them chances and trying to understand them as well. It takes a lot of time and effort from the teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've noticed that in your, your day-to-day practice as well. Yeah, I was actually thinking about myself when you were saying that there. Um, I say it's always interesting. Like I would, I would actually love to. I don't know if I would love to actually, but see myself like some of the common phrases and that that I say and that in front of my classes and I don't oh, know. Like how, how, yeah, how I deal with certain situations. Sometimes I'm driving home. I'm like, oh my god, did I actually say that? Or did, is that how I reacted to that? And but it'd be interesting to actually analyze it and see. See how you actually yeah. want to see what your triggers are. That's a good way of looking yeah, at it. And it's and we're all human. We we all have human reactions. We all, you know, get tired, we all get stressed, and maybe our reactions um are, are quicker in some days than others to mm-hmm. situations we might respond to really calmly on a different day. And it's yeah. not to say that we, we're going to be perfect and, and not have those reactions at all. I think the thing is about understanding our reactions. Mm-hmm. And thinking about, you know, if we have overreacted in a situation, can we repair this? 
um, can we as adults apologise for a situation mm-hmm. that's gone wrong? Yeah, I think that's powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of bravery to try and empathise with them um, and take that time to understand it from their, their uh, viewpoint as well. But I was going to say, what was I going to say there? I, we spoke to another um, guest recently about behaviour management and they spoke a lot about what you were saying in terms of being predictable. Like the kids need to know how you're going to behave in front of them. Mm-hmm. You need to be consistent. You can't be like uh, reacting angrily one minute and then you're, you're calm the next minute. So they, they need to know how, how you're going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to feel calm enough to learn, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, thanks for that. That was, um, that was excellent. We're going to move on to the, the quick fire now. You've definitely put a different spin on that last question there, Don. That's the first time we've had it from a, a pupil's perspective, so that was good. Yeah. Thanks that was very good. much. Um, so we do a wee quick fire round of three questions just to finish off each of our podcasts, just for a wee bit of fun at the end. So are you ready? Yes. Okay, doc. If you could have a giant billboard anywhere, what would it say on it? I think it would say, uh, ask what has happened to someone, not what is wrong with someone. Right. Uh, I think too often we try to look inwards for answers. Um, when we see someone behave in a way we don't understand, we, we work towards finding out if something might be wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we need to shift this focus to try and understand more about the person and the context of the relationship what may have happened to them in the past or might currently be happening to them to best understand how to support them. Digging deeper to that root cause. Yeah. Okay, number two, which people or books have had the biggest influence on your life? You can choose one or you can choose however many you want. You can choose a book or a person or both. Okay, um, I, I'll choose books and people. Both people have written books. So um, I think the work of Dr. Bruce Perry who is a pioneering neuroscientist, uh, researcher and author. Um, his work's been pivotal to the way we think about supporting children and young people who have experienced disruptive attachment and trauma. He's written a series of books. Um, his most recent book um, was written with Oprah Winfrey um, entitled What Happened to You? Um, in the book, it's interesting, he talks about what we call, what he calls the upside down triangle approach. Um, the three R's and that's kind of what we've been talking about throughout Um, and he says the three R's are regulate, relate and reason so what this means is when you're supporting a child in distress your first job is to help them regulate so feel safe and calm secondly you need to relate and empathise with how they're feeling Um, and thirdly um, we need to do these two things before we can try to kind of reason with the child or help them to look for solutions so the three R's is, is really um, what, what he's taught us and, and all of his you know, publications are, are really you know, um, vital to the work of attachment informed practice. I also wanted to mention a book by the late neuroscientist, psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. Um, you might have heard of his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. He talks about the importance of how we respond to adversity. So there's a famous quote from the book that always kind of stays with me. And that's that when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. So basically, I think that during a course of a life, many of us will find ourselves having difficulties or problems, either in work or our personal life. And I think there's a tendency to sometimes look outward and put our energy into focusing on what we can't change. 
um, and maybe out with their control. So I think it has always helped me when I'm in difficult situations to ask myself, what is within my control? What can I control? Um, and how can I change what I'm doing or the way that I'm, I'm thinking to help me move forward? So I would say, you know, those two books or those two people have really influenced the way I think about things. Yeah, brilliant. And number three then, what top three tips would you give to a teacher just now to help them get started with an, an attachment-informed practice? Top three tips. Um, number one, I would watch the TED Talk entitled Every Child Needs a Champion by the late Rita Pearson. I think it's, it's such an inspirational watch. Uh, number two, I would think about um, your own early attachments and try to reflect on your own early relationships and how that impacts and how you relate to people now. Um, because like I said, um, how we respond to children in distress play a big part in attachment forms practice so it, we need to do some kind of reflection on our own um, attachment experiences and the third is about looking after your own well-being um, I think it can be really difficult supporting children and young people who are in distress um, so we really need to remember to recharge our own batteries and take care of ourselves. Brilliant, love that. I can always remember watching the that, that TED talk by Rhea Pearson, is it? Yeah. Um, I can remember our lecturers showed us that on our, uh -huh. on our PGDE, but it is, it is just a, it's like 15 minutes of pure inspiration. She just delivers uh -huh. it so well, doesn't she? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, no, that's uh, brilliant, Donna. Thanks so much. That rounds us off uh, really nicely for tonight's episode of the podcast. So just want to say thanks very much for um, giving up your time tonight to come on and chat with us. Thank you to you both. Yeah, but thanks for coming on, Donna. Really enjoyed that. It's nice to meet you. Me thanks. Stay tuned for this week's takeaway messages from the boys at a wee bit of everything. Right, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of A Wee Bit of Everything with educational psychologist Donna Carrigan for South Lanarkshire Council. What are your takeaway messages or takeaway message from tonight's episode, Clark? I like what Donna said towards the end of the podcast when she was talking about dealing with distressed behaviour. Um, the three R's to, first of all, you need to get them to regulate their, their thinking and emotions, bring them back down to that baseline that she spoke about. And then the second R was to relate to the situation, so try and give them your viewpoint and how you would potentially feel the same as them if that had that happened to you, or this is what maybe you would have done differently and then try and reason with them um, to try and solve the situation together as a team and then come up with a restorative um, outcome so that they can learn from it and take it into their next, their next uh, lesson or just take it with them for future. Mm -hmm. So that would be the, my, my, I quite like the three R's. It's something that I'll keep in mind now when I'm dealing with any instances in my school um, to reason with them um, obviously at the end and then yeah no, there's loads of, loads of good stuff in there about um, attachment informed practice and just creating a safe space for, for your pupils a lot of, a lot of uh, guests have said that about creating a safe space and knowing that you're there to care for them and a massive part of your job what's yep. yours what's yours then buddy boy um, mine's is well I think I think my, my takeaway message would have went went better before your ones. I think the, the three hours is after like maybe 
something's actually happened. So maybe they, they've lost a head or they've really got into a, a stressed state. Um, but I think before that, um, I liked how she spoke about um, trying to identify the triggers first. And I guess that all boils down to the, the whole thing about having good relationships with, the, with your pupils and getting to know them really well and knowing what makes them tick. Um, and then ultimately you'll be able to identify when they are becoming stressed and mm. then when to intervene. So trying to see it as a preventative measure before um, mm. a cure. You know what I mean? So yeah. that was, I, I took that away from that. So I think they would have been better on the, the other way about. So ideally you'd be looking to identify the triggers before they, they fly off the handle or whatever. And it has to get to the stage where you're using the, the three hours. I think, does that make sense? Aye, no, do you want to, is that my fault for going first? No, that's, that's alright, we can, do you want me to edit it and we can swap it a bit? No, I think we can just keep it. <laughs> no, it's quite natural, it's quite authentic, but what I would what I would say on that, what you were saying there, Lewis, which was actually very nicely put. Um, succinct. Oh, very succinct, you know, but um, <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think when when people really lose it, um, there's always going to be cases where you can intervene early, but uh, hopefully that's a ambition isn't it is to intervene early to avoid it get escalating to that to that level um, but there was obviously instances where they could just lose it from 1 to 10 in a matter of yeah. minutes you didn't see it or it could be something that's happened in the class or you know or pre- previous lesson I came came to the PE uh, with them mm-hmm. yep no that um I definitely it's you can't you can't get everything but you're just striving towards doing the best you can and taking those taking those steps and those measures to try and do the best you can with um, the class you've got in front of you and the, the situations that present themselves, not one ever going to be the same. So, Just trying to be relentlessly relentless every second. Thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of the podcast. We hope you've been able to take something away that you can implement into your practice or life. If you regularly listen to the podcast, then why not leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and where we can perhaps improve. That way we can take action and further develop the Obo podcast. Until next time, we hope you have a fantastic week. Take care.